Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Welcome to the science of success. Introducing your host, Matt Bodner. Welcome to the Science of Success, the number one evidence-based growth podcast on the internet with more than 3 million downloads and listeners in over 100 countries. In this episode, we share how to get over yourself and stop taking things so seriously. We discuss the important relationship between confusion and clarity, and we explore the art of letting go of the need for safety, security, and control in your everyday life so that you can relax into who you've always been with our guest, Dr. Mark Epstein. I'm gonna tell you why you've been missing out on some incredibly cool stuff if you haven't signed up for our email list yet. All you have to do to sign up is to go to successpodcast.com and sign up right on the homepage. On top of tons of subscriber-only content, exclusive access, and live Q&As with previous guests, monthly giveaways, and much more, I also created an epic free video course just for you. It's called How to Create Time for What Matters Most Even When You're Really Busy. Email subscribers have been raving about this guide. You can get all of that and much more by going to successpodcast.com and signing up right on the homepage or by texting the word SMARTER to the number 444. 222 on your phone. If you like what I do on Science of Success, my email list is the number one way to engage with me and go deeper on what I discuss on the show, including free guides, actionable takeaways, exclusive content, and much, much more. Sign up for my email list today by going to successpodcast.com and signing up right on the homepage. Or if you're on the go, if you're on your phone right now, it's even easier. Just text the word SMARTER, 
That's S-M-A-R-T-E-R to the number 44222. I can't wait to show you all the exciting things you'll get when you sign up and join the email list. In our previous episode, we discussed how to boost your energy, focus, and happiness in five minutes or less using a dead simple strategy that anyone can apply right away. We explored the power of self-knowledge and why it's one of the cornerstones of success in any area of life. And we uncovered several powerfully uncomfortable questions that you can ask yourself to be happier, healthier, and more productive with our previous guest, Gretchen Rubin. If you want to find a near instant hack for getting focus and energy, listen to our previous episode. Now for our interview with Mark. Today, we have another exciting guest on the show, Dr. Mark Epstein. Mark is a psychiatrist in private practice in New York City and the author of a number of books about the interface of Buddhism and psychotherapy, including his most recent books, The Trauma of Everyday Life and Advice Not Given, A Guide to Getting Over Yourself. He is currently clinical assistant professor in the postdoctoral program in psychotherapy and psychoanalysis at NYU, and his work has been featured in Psychology Today, The New York Times, and much more. Mark, welcome to the Science of Success. Hey, thank you, Matt. I'm glad to be here. Well, we're very excited to have you on the show today. And to start out, I'd love to kind of come in at a high level and, and look at this fundamental theme that you've written and spoken about how do we think about, and this is going to unpack a lot of things, I know this is a big question, but how do we think about moving from this state that we're in so frequently today, sort of addiction, anxiety, stress, et cetera, to a place of, as you call it, sort of love, relief, and, and understanding? Well, I don't think we are just in that place today, although you know, this is a kind of heightened moment where everyone is very conscious of their anxiety and addiction and depression and worry. But I think that's actually a place that people have been in for generations, millennia, going all the way back to the time of the Buddha and before. That was something that initially attracted me to the psychology of Buddhism when I was just a student in college before I really knew very much about anything. But I read the Buddha's words in an early religion class I was taking where he was talking about the day-to-day mind of an average person as flapping like a fish on dry ground, you know, trembling all the time. And I immediately related and wanted to know what the prescription was in ancient times for that kind of anxiety. And, and I found, you know, that it, that prescription was still relevant for me 40, 50 years ago, and now for many of my patients, that You know, the world that we're in is always a difficult place. It's always changing. Our egos want certainty. That's rare that we can find it. We tend to fasten on to our pleasures and try to make them last longer than they can and then box ourselves into a feeling of deprivation or inadequacy. So the Buddhist prescription for training one's own mind is something that I took to heart and have tried to use to the best of my ability in my personal life and in my profession as a therapist. So is training your mind one of the cornerstone pieces of beginning that journey from a place of anxiety and worry to a place of of relief and understanding? Well, I think realizing that the mind is trainable is the beginning. 
even before you actually try to do it. For me, at least, it was a revelation that I wasn't just a victim of my thoughts, you know, but that it was possible actually to exert some control over the way I related to my experience, the way I related to the world, and the way I related also to the stories that I was telling myself about uh, myself. Tell me more about this idea that the mind is trainable. Well, that's the, that's the basic idea of all the Eastern approaches to yoga and meditation. You know, yoga really means yoking, the way you would yoke an animal. So the idea is that the untrained mind is a wild thing. And one of the challenges of development, of adulthood, of maturity, is to get a handle on one's own mind which means getting a handle on one's own addictions, on one's own cravings, and also on one's own tendency toward violence. The Dalai Lama, you know, always talks about inner peace. And when I first heard him talking about inner peace, I thought he was talking about the relaxation response or just calming oneself. But I've come to realize that the inner peace actually means nonviolence. And the way to find that kind of peace of mind is to actually be willing to confront one's own tendency toward violence or hostility, aggression, anger, rage, etc. So it means uh, being honest with oneself. And in that honesty, one can learn how to bring oneself under some modicum of control. How do we start to be honest with ourselves and to confront our own thoughts, our own addictions, our own mental cravings? Well, there are any number of ways. I mean, in, in the West, we have the tradition of psychotherapy, which hasn't yet gone completely away. As far as addiction goes, you know, the 12-step approach to admitting that one is helpless over one's own cravings is very close to what the Eastern approach to meditation is. And now, even in our world, we have all the Eastern techniques of yoga and meditation. So all of those, and we could include, you know, Christian, Jewish, prayer, etc., or atheistic walks in the countryside, anything that promotes self-reflection is really the way in. And then once you're able to honestly be with the contents of one's own emotional experience, then that's the beginning. That's the beginning of a uh, kind of taking stock of where one is at. And once one's willing to do that, then you can start to apply some of the techniques. It's funny, this idea of self-reflection, self-awareness mm -hmm. is, is such a prominent theme across people we interview from a huge array of, of backgrounds and disciplines. Oh, well, it's, it's definitely the happening thing. How do you begin to for someone who's not familiar with this, who hasn't started on this journey yet, or even for someone who's, who's just beginning their journey, how do we start to create that self-reflection in our lives? How do we overcome the inertia around or the fear around really looking and peering at our own thinking? Well, I don't think you have to overcome the fear. You just have to be willing to examine it. And the, the same with inertia. I mean, m many people are interested in meditation, for instance, or even in psychotherapy. And the hardest thing is just taking that first step, being willing to sit down on the meditation cushion, being willing to make the appointment and come in and uh, talk to a therapist honestly. 
to uh, think that you have to wait until you have no fear or until there's no tendency towards inertia is, I think, a misplaced idea. The whole idea is to be able to look at all the obstacles, all the defenses, and to turn those into uh, grist for the meditation mill or the therapy mill for that matter. I think that's a really important point, this idea that we often make it too difficult for ourselves or think that it has to be perfect before we take the first step and begin practicing. But the reality is the sooner you get started, the sooner you take that first step, as you said, the better it is. And then you have to begin that journey somewhere. I think you have to be ready. You know, if you try to force somebody into therapy or try to force somebody to meditate, that doesn't work. The defenses just rear up and they're, they're too strong. But I think people know when, when they reach a critical point of personal suffering, you know, and that's different for different people comes at different times. But if it's happening to you, you know it. And then it's really worth taking the step because there is help available and many qualified, you know, really motivated people who are wanting to help. And you touched on that in many ways, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that shaped the story or the narrative around advice not given is this idea that, how did you handle that balance of trying to help people understand this with the fact that maybe it wasn't something that they had asked for originally? Well, that latest book that you're referring to, Advice Not Given, one of the things that happened that led to me writing that book was that my, my father who was a fairly well-known academic physician, a, a scientist, and he was actually chairman of the Department of Medicine at one of the Harvard hospitals. He came down with an inoperable brain tumor that was in the silent part of his brain. So cognitively, he was fine and he was still working, but he got lost one day driving home the same 15-minute drive that he'd taken for 30 years, and they realized there was, you know, this thing growing in the non-dominant side of his brain. And by the time they discovered it, it was too late to do anything from the medical side. And so he knew that he didn't have that long to live, and I knew that too. And my father, while very supportive of my writing and so on, was definitely not interested in any of the Buddhist side of things or the meditation. It was not scientific enough for him. And we hardly ever talked about it. He would ask about my books or about my practice, but we never got into the substance of it. But when the diagnosis was clear, I I was sitting in my own office and I realized, you know, I've never talked to my father about any of this. And in the Buddhist world, there's actually a lot of advice about how to handle one's own mind when facing death. And in fact, what to do with one's mind when, when actually dying. And I realized, oh, you know, I have all this advice I haven't been giving, even to my own father. And I, with some trepidation, called him on the telephone from my office and, you know, said something to him like, you know, I don't know if you want to know about any of this, but there actually is all this information that may or may not be true, but it's supposed to be helpful. And he was very nice. You know, he's like, oh, sure, go ahead. Tell me whatever you want. And I said something to him about how there's a feeling, you know, a subjective feeling inside that really doesn't change very much from when you're 20 years old or 40 or 60 or even 80. He was 84. 
where inside you feel much the same to yourself as you always have. But if you try to find that feeling, to really look for it, it, it sort of disappears on you. It's a kind of transparent feeling. I said what the Buddhists seem to say is that if you learn to relax your mind into that transparent feeling, you can kind of ride that feeling out as the body falls apart. And that feeling of relaxing into who you've always been is something analogous to what you learn in meditation. And he was like, okay, darling, I'll try. And uh, that was the last conversation that I, that I had with him. But I felt like he, you know, he really heard me, and at least I was able to get that much, that much out. So that actually was one of the big motivations for the book, or for the title of the book, because I realized that even with my psychotherapy patients, I was always very careful not to try to lay a Buddhist trip on them if they weren't ready to hear the spiritual language that I wanted to function the way Western therapists function, which is to try to stay out of the way as much as possible in order to let people's real reasons for coming to therapy rise to the surface and then try to help them as, as much as I could. But I wasn't overtly giving meditation instruction or anything. Then I thought, oh, well, maybe it's time after 40 years of doing this to be a little more explicit the way I was with my dad for people. So I tried to put a lot of that into the book. I want to get into more concretely the relationship between Buddhism and your psychotherapy practice. But before we do, mm -hmm. tell me about, explain and, and go a little bit deeper into this idea of relaxing into who you've always been. I find that to be really fascinating. Well, there, there are different ways to talk about what we do in meditation. And the most common way that I've found is kind of from from the outside in, where the technique or the strategy or what I sometimes call the craft of meditation is handed down almost in a behavioral way or in a cognitive therapy kind of way, like, you know, focus your mind on the sensation of the breath as it enters and leaves the nostrils. When your mind wanders from the direct physical sensation of the breath and you notice that your mind has wandered, bring it back the way you might teach a young child, gently but firmly, direct the attention back to the sensation of the breath. If thoughts come, note that the mind is thinking, but try not to get caught in the content of the thoughts. Try to watch the thought as it rises and falls, as it appears and then disappears. The same with feelings, with emotions, with memories, with sounds and disturbances from the outside. So those are the kind of formal instructions, the, the technique that one learns if one goes to a meditation class or a meditation teacher. But I've been increasingly interested in trying to talk about more the art of meditation rather than the craft, what we're really doing when we meditate. And that's where I think my own personal experience, both as a meditator and as a therapist and as a person in therapy, has come into play. Because whenever you're sitting alone with your own thoughts and feelings, you're actually processing a lot of what we in our culture have come to think about as our personality, you know, going all the way back to who we were when we were a child. And so there's a lot of psychological, a lot of emotional material that the ancient Buddhist texts 
didn't really have the language for. You know, there was no Freud in the time of the Buddha. People didn't pay attention to their childhoods or to their dreams or to their relationships in the same way that we do now. So all of that material, you know, early traumas, early difficulties in our family life, in school, in our love, in our love relationships, all of that stuff is actually filtering through our minds also as we try to meditate. And we need to have a way of relating to all of that material too. So I'm thinking of that approach more as the art of meditation. And that's what I was also trying to convey to my father that about behind all of that is this subjective feeling of who we are, who we used to be, who we might be, who we don't quite understand, what we don't quite understand, more the mystery of what it is to be a person with a mind and a body. And we tap into that in meditation, as well as all of the psychological stuff that I was mentioning before. You once said that people expect too much of meditation. What did you mean by that? Well, a lot of people these days come to meditation hoping for something similar to what they might expect from Prozac if they're anxious or depressed. You know, that it's going to be the pill, the thing that is going to make them happy. And I think that it doesn't really work like that. And to hope for too much from meditation is to just get disappointed. It's a much more subtle intervention, even than Prozac. And Prozac doesn't always work either, you know. So tell me more about the art side of meditation. I understand, and, and we've, we've done a number of episodes in the, in the past on the show about this sort of craft and the physical technique and practice of it. But I want to understand more deeply this, this side around the art of it, as you called it. Well, I think meditation ultimately is something that you have to teach yourself. You know, the Buddha... At the time of his death, his last words to his faithful student and attendant, Ananda, were, be an island to yourself, take refuge in yourself. So, you know, you can learn the technique, you can learn the craft of meditation, but a lot of us, I don't know if this is only in the West or if this is more longstanding, but... A lot of us want the experts to, in some sense, do it for us. And we want the scientists to kind of lay out what neural pathways meditation is working on and what neurotransmitters are being stimulated by the practice. And it's easier to focus on that than it is to really wrestle with the depth of one's own confusion. But that's where the art of meditation lies, being willing to be honest in an ongoing way with what one's deepest inner struggles actually are, and to kind of find that place of balance inside of oneself where one can sit as if under a giant tree with all the successes and failures and praise and criticism and pleasure and pain that life throws at us. That's really the art of meditation, being willing to be with all of that with some kind of equanimity. I think you make another really good point, which is this idea that we have to put in the work and sit in our own confusion and really work through these things, and that it's not a quick fix like taking a pill, but it's still something that's really richly rewarding at the end of the day. 
Well, there's some important relationship between confusion and clarity, just as there is between anger and love. You know, I think what we've learned from uh, therapy is that it's so much harder to love if you haven't faced the kind of anger that you're actually harboring, even for the person who you need the most. And I think it's similar with confusion and clarity, that the clarity that one seeks from meditation really emerges out of being willing to sit in the midst of one's own confusion. And it's only by staring it in the face. You know, the Zen meditators stare at the wall. They sit and stare at the wall for however long they can stand it. And I think that's some kind of metaphor for sitting and staring at your own confusion. The very word that the Buddha used when he gave his first psychological teachings of the Four Noble Truths, he said, you know, the first noble truth is the truth of dukkha, which is generally translated as suffering. But the actual word dukkha, ka means face, and du is something like it's difficult. So the word actually means it's difficult to face. You know, there's something in our experience, something that permeates life that's difficult to face, the same way the wall is difficult to face for the Zen meditators. And, you know, what is that that's difficult to face? It's ourselves. It's the way we fight with experience. It's our own anxiety, our fears, our confusion, our inertia, as you mentioned before. There's an awful lot in uh, in a given individual's experience that's difficult to face. And the Buddha was saying meditation is a way of actually doing that. And if you face what's difficult to face, you start to find that it becomes more workable. It's not an immediate transition to happiness, you know, but it becomes more workable. It's a kind of therapy in its own right. And the mind itself becomes more workable. It becomes less rigid, more, more pliant, more open more accepting, and I think eventually more able to love. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Hiring the right person takes time. Time that you often don't have. But you shouldn't let a time crunch get in the way of finding the right candidates for your business. 
That's why LinkedIn is the best place to post your job. In fact, I was on LinkedIn Jobs this morning looking for candidates to fill a key role in one of my businesses. LinkedIn Jobs screens candidates with hard and soft skills you're looking for so that you can hire the right person quickly. You can look for things like collaboration, creativity, and adaptability, looking beyond just work skills and resumes to connect you with the candidates who are a perfect match for your business. That's how LinkedIn makes sure that your job post gets in front of the people you actually want to hire because they have a much better ability to get a deep insight into exactly who is the right candidate for you and your business. Find the right person meant for your business today with LinkedIn Jobs. You can pay what you want and the first $50 is on them. Just visit linkedin.com slash success. Again, that's linkedin.com slash success to get $50 off your first job post. Terms and conditions apply. This theme of this idea is, as you call it, facing the difficult. You know, we, we've had a number of previous episodes where we talk about the idea of embracing discomfort. And whether you're talking to literally in the case of some of the people we've interviewed in the past on the show, astronauts to performance psychologists at the highest possible level to neuroscientists, this idea of embracing discomfort is another theme that's really recurrent across a huge number of, of fields. And again, I feel like today so many people shy away from discomfort or move away from it or flinch and, and try to run the other way when they encounter things that are uncomfortable. Well, that's very natural, you know. Of course, you turn away from whatever is uncomfortable. And I think to phrase it, you know, too strongly as embracing discomfort is maybe to overdo it in in that way that we were talking before about, you know, forcing meditation on people might be counterproductive or, you know, going too too far towards the discomfort as if it's a good thing. But what, what the Buddha, I think, is saying, and, and what a lot of our best psychotherapists are pointing to also, is that there's an, just an element of discomfort that is inevitable. And if we don't make room for it, I don't know that we have to embrace it. We certainly don't have to like it. But if we can't make room for it, then we start erecting these defenses against it that back us into a corner and tend to rigidify our own minds and our own experience such that we become, you know, slightly paranoid and afraid because there's always more discomfort to come. So the Buddha is suggesting there's a way of, you know, swimming in the sea of it, not necessarily enjoying it all the time, but at least learning how to float. Earlier, you mentioned love. Tell me a little yeah. bit about how you think about love and, and how it might be different from the Western traditional conception of it. Well, I try not to think about love too much, but allowing love to emerge when it does, not to be scared of love and to realize that, you know, that's really what we're here for. And it's, it's available everywhere. So even in family life and in the psychotherapy office and at work and with the people you only know a little bit. You know, there's, uh, we're all wired for it. So not closing ourselves off to it when it wants to reveal itself. I want to zoom out and come back to something we touched on earlier. As a psychotherapist, how did you begin to integrate or think about 
Buddhism as a tool or as a resource? Well, I actually came to Buddhism first. So I was in an unusual position in our culture. I think I mentioned before, I found Buddhism when I was still in college, before I had taken any courses in psychology, before I read Freud, before I knew I was going to go to medical school to become a therapist. Buddhism somehow found me. And I began to meditate. I met uh, now very well-known meditation teachers like Jack Kornfield and Joseph Goldstein and the, the Dalai Lama. I met them all when I was young and uh, practiced as, as much meditation as I could, given the, the confines of still being in college and so on. And it was only after, you know, kind of uh, immersing myself as much as I was able in that world that I decided to really a study to become a therapist, a psychiatrist, to go to medical school, to become a physician, and so on. So a lot of my training in Western psychotherapy I did after learning about Buddhism, and I took it in kind of through a Buddhist lens. So I was always interested in the beginning in how do these two worlds line up? Are they saying the same thing or different things? You know, the Buddhists way of working with the mind didn't seem that different from the Western psychoanalytic way of working with the mind. Both involved setting up what the therapist called a therapeutic split in the ego, where you were both the subject and the object of your own experience. You know, you were observing yourself in this kind of reflective way that we were talking about before. And meditation was much the same. So the best way of learning how to be a therapist is, of course, to be in therapy. There's a lot of training in how to be a therapist, but that's sort of similar to the training in meditation. You can get the basic instruction from the outside, but you kind of have to figure out how to do it from the inside. So I learned how to be a therapist by being a therapist. And I learned how to integrate meditation and Buddhism with my therapy by trying to integrate it with my therapy uh, in working with my patients over many years. And I would say I'm still at the beginning of being able to do that or being able to talk about how I do that, but it's been an ongoing effort. Tell me more about this idea of creating a therapeutic split in the ego. Well, that's the basis for most of the kind of psychological development that Buddhism and psychoanalysis both striving for that uh, we were talking about at the beginning, that it's actually possible, and it's a very strange thing, it's actually possible to simultaneously be both the observer and that which is being observed in one's own stream of consciousness. So that's a capacity that somehow we as humans have evolved there's some evidence that some of the other higher primates and, and other mammals also have that self-reflective capacity. Elephants and octopuses and, you know, I'm not sure, it's some, probably some of the baboons and so on seem to also have bits of that ability, but we really have it. So in the, in the Buddhist way of thinking, the human realm that we're all part of is the optimal place for psychological development because we can either completely surrender to our thoughts, cravings, addictions, feelings, and so on, or we can become the observer of them. 
And uh, in becoming the observer of them, we change how we relate to any of them so that we don't have to be their helpless victim anymore. We can actually interpose space between the impulse and the action. And that's a lot of what is cultivated in both traditions, East and West. So what is the ego? Uh, Oh, that's a very good question. The, The ego doesn't really exist. The ego is a word that we now put on the aspect of our experience that has to mediate between inner impulses and outer requirements of family, school, friends, the world, as we experience it from the outside. So the the ego is something that cognitively develops at around the age of three or four, when the child first realizes that he or she is a separate person and has to be careful about how he or she acts. So the ego, as we think about it in Western psychology, is that which is all about self-preservation and self-control. So the, the ego is always looking for some kind of safety, some kind of control, some kind of security. And if we didn't have the ego, we would be at the mercy of our most primitive impulses. The way, I don't know if if you've ever been around someone with schizophrenia, but in schizophrenia, something happens to the ego and the person is no longer able to regulate themselves. They're no longer able to mediate their most primitive thoughts, which just come pouring out of their mouths in a kind of disjointed fashion. So the ego is a very important aspect of psychological development, but from a Buddhist point of view, it tends to be overdeveloped and boxes us into that corner I was talking about before, where in the attempt to find security and safety and to exert control, it it has to make us more rigid than we need to be because we live in a world where even though we've found amazing ability to achieve some security, it's impossible in a complete way. And, you know, one of the most interesting things, I really found the subtitle of Advice Not Given to be a little bit provocative even, which is a guide to getting over yourself. Tell me a little bit that, about that and, and how that relates to the ego. Well, the subtitle came to me later. The book was going to have a different subtitle, which I can't even remember anymore. But suddenly I realized, advice not given, I had the book structured around the Buddha's Eightfold Path, which is his fourth noble truth, which was the Buddha's prescription for how to deal with uh, suffering or trauma. And it's, the prescription is, you know, goes from right thought, right understanding, right speech, right action, right livelihood, to right concentration and right mindfulness. But the central idea in Buddhist psychology is that we all take ourselves too seriously and that in our attempts to optimize our own personal experience, we end up competing against the other billion or so people in the world, and we are inevitably going to come out on the short end of the stick. 
So in order to live a better life, we have to come to the understanding that we are not an isolated entity the way we think of ourselves, you know, in competition with or in opposition to the rest of humanity, but we are in fact an integral part of the world as a whole. We can't take ourselves out of it the way we imagine we ought to be able to. So that's the thought behind getting over oneself. It's getting over the way we tend to privilege our own position within the recesses of our own minds. And in so doing, we experience ourselves as a relational being, not as an isolated entity. And that's what it means to get over yourself, in, in my limited view. It's such an interesting idea and, and something that I think about a lot, this idea that we're, we can't possibly be separated from everything else. And I think originally came to that from reading Alan Watts, who's one of my favorite old school yeah. thinkers, kind of bridging that gap between Buddhist thinking and Eastern thinking and Western thinking. Yeah. Well, Alan Watts is one of the first great talkers, who uh, translators, who could make all of this really come alive. But, you know, most of us do really think of ourselves as separate from uh, the rest of the world. And secretly, in the privacy of our own minds, you know, we're scheming about how to keep ourselves safe or garner enough to secure our retirement. Uh, and that's, you know, our most personal kind of thinking. The interesting thing about this this idea of being one with with everything is that from a hard science standpoint, if you look at the the physics of it, if you look at the biology of it, it it's something that truly, scientifically speaking, we really are inseparable from the rest of reality. Well, the the scientists are probing reality nonstop, and what they find, you know, is that they can't even separate themselves as the prober from the reality that they're probing. That's the, the great mystery of relativity. So the Buddhists were there in a certain way long ago. They, that this idea, even of the therapeutic split in the ego that I was trying to tell my father about, you know, even as you relax your mind into that subjective sense of who you always were, you can't totally pull yourselves out of that greater reality that you are part of. What are some of the other themes or commonalities that that you've uncovered between Buddhism and psychotherapy? Well, that idea of nonviolence that I was talking about earlier is the one I'm thinking about the most now, because I think the Western psychoanalytic traditions especially were the most fearless at confronting the underlying violence that conditions all of our minds. And that when you even look at the psychology of very young children, infants with their mothers and so on, you can see that it's a tendency that we all come in with. So in the Eastern traditions and in, uh, in a, lot of, a lot of those in our culture who are drawn to the Eastern traditions, there can be a tendency to try to leapfrog over some of the more raw and primitive instinctual kinds of impulses that are uh, driving us, you know, as if we could just jump right into the enlightened states that we read about. But I don't really think that's possible. That's a kind of spiritual bypassing that 
some of the first generations of people to look at the Eastern psychology have been prone towards. And I've been much more interested in what happens if we, again, take that just very honest kind of reckoning with ourselves and allow ourselves to be humbled by what we see. That seems to yield a, a kind of humility and graciousness that seems to be good for people. That's a great turn of phrase. We can't jump right into enlightenment. I think it's a, it's a really succinct way of describing the importance of this journey and this everyday practice of, of moments of honest reckoning with ourselves. Yes. Well, it's hard to really know what enlightenment means, you know, since, since most of us, myself included, haven't experienced it. So people should be aware of the gurus who are presenting themselves as already there because it's pretty likely that most of them aren't. So for listeners who want to concretely implement some of the ideas that we've talked about today, what would be one piece of homework or an action item that you would give them to begin on their own personal journey? Oh, I would just say like read a book or go to an art museum or I was teaching once in Oklahoma and, and the, this uh, therapist came up to me afterwards and said, you know, in, in Oklahoma, we can't even talk about meditation or mindfulness. When I'm working with a new person, I just tell them like, go outside, close the door, stand there and listen. So I think to be too prescriptive for people is to make the wrong move. And that's sort of where that advice not given, that's the other, the other sentiment that was going into the title. People can find their own way. There are so many paths out there. And it's so much better when you find your own way than when you're just like swallowing somebody else's pill that they're giving you. So trust yourself. And for listeners who want to find you and, and your work online, what's the best place for them to do that? Well, there, I have a website that lists all my books and has a couple of links to you know this or that article or interview. So they can go there. And, and I also have a Facebook page that is Mark Epstein, MD, that has a list of you know upcoming talks or lectures or whatever. Well, we'll make sure to include links to all of those in the show notes at successpodcast.com. Mark, thank you so much for coming on the show, for sharing all this wisdom and knowledge. Thanks a lot, Matt. It's been great. Thank you so much for listening to The Science of Success. We created this show to help you, our listeners, master evidence-based growth. I love hearing from listeners. If you want to reach out, share your story, or just say hi, shoot me an email. My email is matt at successpodcast.com. That's M-A-T-T at successpodcast.com. I'd love to hear from you and I read and respond to every single listener email. I'm gonna give you three reasons why you should sign up for our email list today by going to successpodcast.com, signing up right on the homepage. There's some incredible stuff that's only available to those on the email list, so be sure to sign up, including an exclusive curated weekly email from us called Mindset Monday, which is short, simple, filled with articles, stories, things that we found interesting and fascinating in the world of evidence-based growth in the last week. Next, you're getting an exclusive chance to shape the show, including voting on guests, submitting your own personal questions that we'll ask guests on air, and much more. Lastly, you're going to get a free guide we created based on listener demand. 
our most popular guide, which is called How to Organize and Remember Everything. You can get it completely for free, along with another surprise bonus guide by signing up and joining the email list today. Again, you can do that at successpodcast.com. Sign up right at the homepage. Or if you're on the go, just text the word SMARTER, S-M-A-R-T-E-R, to the number 44222. Remember, the greatest compliment you can give us is a referral to a friend, either live or online. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us an awesome review and subscribe on iTunes because that helps boost the algorithm that helps us move up the iTunes rankings and helps more people discover the science of success. Don't forget, if you want to get all the incredible information we talk about in the show, links, transcripts, everything we discuss, and much more, be sure to check out our show notes. You can get those at successpodcast.com. Just hit the show notes button right at the top. Thanks again, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Science of Success. find cars like these on auto trader new cars used cars electric cars maybe even flying cars okay no flying cars but as soon as they get invented they'll be on auto trader just you wait auto trader